Hey, Sassnacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm discussing the season five finale, Never My Love. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 7 and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 5, Episode 12, Never My Love. was a humdinger of a finale, probably one of the best finales of the series, in my opinion. Very dark, very dramatic, but also extremely emotional and powerful, which honestly is what I love to see in Outlander. But before we get into the season finale, I want to take a moment to print a retraction, as it were. Last episode, I was talking about the significance of the peanut butter and jelly in the listener comments section, and just wanted to take a moment to kind of let you guys know that after I published that episode, I was speaking with a friend and quickly realized that the title card with the peanut butter and jelly sandwich was not as poetic as I originally thought it was. It is not the Freedom and Whiskey title card. Brianna making peanut butter and jelly is actually the down the rabbit hole title card, which, you know, still has some significant bearing on the series and the importance of peanut butter and jelly, but not as much of a one-two punch as I was initially thinking. So just to let you guys know, I'm here. I'm admitting that I was wrong. And for those of you that were listening to that episode and thinking, ah, don't think so. Yes, I was very much wrong. So yeah, with that off my chest, we will get into the season five finale, Never My Love. An extremely emotive episode. Everyone had fantastic moments. Obviously, it was a very Claire slash Katrina-centric episode, but that didn't mean that all of the rest of our main cast didn't have that defining moment, which I love Last episode, we ended with Jamie running up the cliff to light the fiery cross and call his men to him to go save Claire. Something that is extremely normal about this series is you get the previously on Outlander, all the previous footage that is important and relevant, and then you get the credits, and then you get the title card. We get none of that in this episode. And it's not even a cold open. Literally, we start with the previously on Outlander section, but there's no sound, just this menacing music, the pulse of this drum that feels like a heartbeat, all these critical scenes. And automatically, that's like sensory deprivation. You're already feeling uncomfortable. And I'll be honest, sometimes I have issues with my TV. And so when I first watched this episode, I had to pause and like try it on a different device because I thought that there was something wrong with my TV. And then I realized, no, this is just the episode. This is how it's starting out. So this episode was very much meant to feel off and to unsettle the viewer. And I think they did that in spades. This episode also did something extremely unique in the coloring and shading of its shots so that we could visually differentiate the timelines that were going on. All the flashbacks with Claire, where we're seeing what happened to her with all the men from pretty much right after she was kidnapped 
until we see her really struggling to breathe and cope and everything after her assault. All of that stuff is in a very washed out color that reminded me a lot of the 1940s visual cue that we get whenever we watch this show. In the first season, whenever we were seeing all of the stuff in Sassanac and with Frank over the course of the first few episodes, there's no vivid color. Everything is almost in a shade of gray or blue. And that's kind of what we got with this opening sequence whenever we see Claire with the men that kidnapped her, the Browns is what I will just refer to them as. I know not all of them are Browns, but it's the Brown Gang, so that's what we're going to call them. I struggle so much with Lionel as a villain because I just feel like he's a complete asshole. I also think that he doesn't really think things through. And so I really like an intelligent villain. That's kind of what I appreciate as a viewer. That's why Blackjack Randall and Stephen Bonnet are so fantastic to me. Lionel is more of an impulsive drunk who makes bad decisions and is an abusive personality. So that kind of villain is hard for me to wrap my head around. Granted, I think the things that he was responsible for in this episode were absolutely terrible and probably on par with some of the things that Blackjack Randall and Stephen Bonnet did, but he's not as cerebral of a character, I guess. So it's harder for me to appreciate him as a viewer. That being said, when he and the gang put it together to destroy Jamie's whiskey still to distract him and then come in and take Claire, in the books, that was all quite different. And so... Again, it was one of those things where I was having to adjust my expectations. And I think this was a fantastic episode. Don't get me wrong. But finding the motivation for him to take Claire and then for him and his men to do the things that they did to her. I guess it's maybe a level of presentism on my part that I'm not fully buying that. But also, I guess, when you think about how much of a narcissist he is or maybe how selfish he is in that everything that happens in his life is somebody else's fault or somebody else's doing, and he's constantly blaming other people other than himself. When you look at it on that level, I kind of guess it does make a little more sense. And so we're seeing just this abusive behavior to Claire from all of these men. They're, you know, cutting open her dress, cutting her across the breast with a knife, beating her so brutally. It's hard to watch. I think that there would be something wrong with me if I said that this episode was easy to watch. It's not. It's not meant to be. And I know that a lot of people can't rewatch this episode because it's so difficult to watch a lot like Wentworth Prison and To Ransom a Man's Soul in season one. Those are episodes that people cannot rewatch. They can't make themselves push play. I understand that. I really do because... A, it's triggering for a lot of people. There are a lot of survivors out there that don't want to relive that. And I 100% get that. Also, there are a lot of people that don't want to see that level of malice and evil on a TV show when they're watching TV to kind of escape from the world. So I also get that as well. For me personally, I think that this episode was extremely powerful for Claire's character. And when you look at it that way and you look at how much sexual assault is ingrained in this TV show in general and this world of Outlander. If you ask Diana Gabaldon about it, she'll say, why shy away from it? It's something that happened regularly in the 18th century. It still happens today. It's just people are more vocal about it and people view women less as property and more as people. So I think it probably happens 
a little less often today. At least I would like to think so because people are more aware of it, I guess. I'll be the first to admit this show really does lean on sexual assault. I don't think that it's necessarily used as a plot device. Whenever we look at Claire's situation prior to her assault, she's got that typical Claire feistiness that we're used to seeing in her. She's using her wit and her wherewithal to think of a way to escape. And when you're looking at that through the lens of kind of the supplemental material of that section of the book, she's really just stalling for time. She knows Jamie is coming for her. So what can she do to shorten the gap between when Jamie comes for her and where they are now, and looking for opportunities to escape at any moment if she can, which I think that that's just smart. And she sees a loose thread in Tebby. She knows that he's extremely superstitious, and if there's going to be anyone in the group that is going to even unwittingly help her escape, it's going to be him. So she really focuses in on him and uses the rumors about her and her being a witch to kind of strengthen her case, I guess. And in doing so, in all of this behavior of trying to manipulate these men, there's one man in the background that is observing very quietly and he knows there's something off about Claire and that's Wendigo Donner. A very significant character in this series. Not yet, but I promise you he's not just there to fill airtime. He will be important at some point later on in the series. He is constantly dropping little clues, trying to poke the bear, get a response out of Claire, because he just has a feeling about her. And I really do think that in the Gabaldon time travel universe that time travelers are drawn to each other. They don't necessarily know that that's why they're drawn to each other. But Donner, he makes a couple of comments. First, when he's asking, where are you from? You can't see the stars where I'm from, but the moon is always the same, like the man on the moon. But a common story and a common expression back in that time was the man in the moon which is something completely different, but it's something that you hear Jamie reference in season three. So Claire, I think, kind of just turns around and says, well, you know, maybe I misheard him. But there's really no mistaking it when Donner comes over to Claire a couple nights later and says, does the name Ringo Starr mean anything to you? I mean, there's no avoiding it at that point. He is legitimately a time traveler and the light bulb clicks on for Claire and she was like, oh my God, yes, I know who Ringo Starr is. Can you please help me get out of here? And I think it's just a whole other level of devastation when he doesn't help her because I think she had this glimmer of hope that, oh my God, maybe I'm going to get out of here like I have this connection with this guy and maybe that's going to help me. And it doesn't because he's a coward. So I think that the whole purpose of Donner existing within this episode is twofold. First, it kind of brings the idea of time travel back into it and plants seeds for future plotline. Second, it really amplifies the level of devastation that Claire feels after everything that has happened to her because she feels betrayed on another level after him just leaving her there for the other men to do as they wish with her. I don't know, honestly, that Lionel Brown intended for it to go this far 
when he was first planning this abduction. I think that like surface level, he really did just want to take her to Brownsville and quote unquote, make her repent for her sins and come clean and say that she didn't really know what she was talking about. And women could go back to laying with their husbands anytime they wanted because there was no rhyme or reason to when they would get pregnant. I think that was like surface level what Lionel Brown intended. However, Claire kind of just poked the bear and poked the bear and kept prodding. And that's when the malicious nature really started to come out and evolve in Lionel Brown. When we look at how this sexual assault was filmed compared to the other sexual assaults in this series, what I, I hesitate to say what I like about it because I don't like it. I don't like that this happens to characters. But what I appreciate about the artistry of how these sexual assaults are filmed is that each one is identifiably different in how it's filmed and in how it's approached. I think for a lot of people, the hardest one to watch is season one with Jamie, A, because it's male-on-male rape, which never happens in mainstream media. B, it's extremely, extremely violent. It's extremely graphic. So that's really, really hard for a lot of people to digest. And I know it lost a lot of people when that happened on screen. But I think, as I've said before, as we talk about this, because I know it was brought up in season four when we talked about Bree's assault and in season two when Fergus was assaulted, I tried to mention it just to kind of remind people. But I think why the season one rape was so graphic was A, because it was in a different time. Even in the six or seven years that it's been since it aired, sexual assault was approached differently in media. It was before the Me Too movement, and there's been a lot of awareness brought to the idea of sexual assault and um, domestic abuse. So do I think that if they had the choice to redo it, they would? Absolutely. Would I personally choose for it to be different? No, I wouldn't. Because I feel like that being so god-awful, A, helps to define Jamie's character as we move forward and he watches those around him go through similar experiences. We understand 100% why he can be so caring, but also so completely devastated and understand what those around him need from him because he's been there before. Also, I think the graphic nature of that assault lessens the need to see it on screen for all the other times. Brianna's was completely off screen and you just heard it, which was a whole other type of horrible because you saw everybody ignoring it. Claire's was kind of a mixture of both because you see her just getting the crap beat out of her. You hear it, but you don't physically see the blows landing. You see her body jerking. You hear what's happening and you see and hear the agony that she's going through. It wasn't until it was all over that the camera craned up and you could see, you could just see Claire laying there. All the fight was gone from her. That's what struck me the most is we're so used to seeing Claire being so strong and independent and fiery. And in that moment, she is completely and utterly defeated. And then when you you move on to the rescue scene, After Jamie finds her, she's incapable of words. All she can do is whimper and cry. And I think that, more than anything, is what devastates Jamie in that moment. 
every single wall and everything that makes her clear, everything that he loves about her has been almost taken from her in that moment. And she's literally reduced down to this vulnerable woman who has just been beaten and violated in every possible way. And it's just awful. And then when you kind of use your viewer memory to understand that level of violence, it fills in the gaps for you. So I think that they did a fantastic job with the way this was filmed. I know that it was very, very carefully considered because they knew they had to include it because it informed Claire's character moving forward throughout the series. I don't really think that it's something that you could just pluck out and completely pretend it didn't exist. But they knew that they had to be very careful with it because of the sensitivity surrounding sexual assault. Katrina and the producers and Jamie Payne, the director, all of her co-stars were very integral in creating this environment. And I'll never forget, um, Katrina made a comment in an interview after this episode aired. And she said that she almost felt worse for the men that had to portray her rapist because they're the ones that kind of felt this wrongness of it all and had to pretend that they were okay with it, that they supported it. And she said they were all extremely respectful, but she did feel bad for them on a level because nobody wants to portray that kind of thing. One thing that I did find this episode kind of lacking in, and I understand why they made this choice, because this episode was supposed to be about Claire and her struggle, and they didn't want to make it about other people. I get that. But also, I was really, really hoping to get more from Jamie's point of view, because the level of guilt that he feels it's not even necessarily guilt. It's a moment of complete and utter failure is how he feels. Like every action he takes is to make sure that Claire is as safe as she can possibly be and for his family to be as safe as they can be. And the worst has happened in his eyes. Like, but also he knows the trauma that goes along with the sexual assault and to see that she has gone through the exact same thing now. I think that really really destroys him. And there's a comment that he makes in season six when Claire's talking about how Fergus blames himself for what happened to Marsley and Jamie just gets this look on his face and he says, I, of course he would. Back then, and still today to some extent, men viewed it as their job to take care of their woman. And if they failed in that endeavor, then they have failed in every single thing that they stood for. And Jamie especially feels that way about Claire. Like, it is his job to protect her. And I think that is what is pulling him through that rescue scene and pulling him through that moment. It's not necessarily about vengeance. In the scene where Brian and Roger first return to the ridge, we see him look at Fergus and nod and then walk through the breezeway with all of his men lining both sides of the breezeway. And they are going to war. It's about making sure that Claire is safe. And after that, that's when you can shed blood for the sake of your own anger. But until Claire is safe, nothing else matters. And he will do whatever he has to do to make sure that he gets her home. Whenever they get to the rescue scene, this is some of the most beautiful camera work I have ever seen. The director of photography and the director did phenomenal work in this episode in general, 
But the rescue scene with the inky blacks contrasted against the yellows and the oranges of the fire. Like, I'm a sucker for a good silhouette on any given day. And then you add it to an action sequence and all the weapons and the sparks flying and the firelight glinting off the swords. It's so artistic. It catches my eye as an artistic person. And then when you add it to when Claire comes to out of her dreamscape and the camera is tilted to one side, this is a technique that they use a couple of different times in this episode. They use it in the rescue scene and they also use it when they are going down the main hallway in the house, in the dreamscape. And all that does is signify on a visual level to the viewer something's not right. Something is off-center. It's meant to shift your center of gravity and make you feel unstable as a viewer. That, I think, is perfect for something like this episode because you're meant to feel uneasy from the very beginning. But it also kind of, it changes the visual language of the show also, both in how it was filmed and the idea of this escapism that we've got going on, which a lot of research was done into sexual assault survivors and kind of their coping mechanisms. And they thought that it would be a good idea to kind of make it a unique experience from what we've seen in the past to have her go into this dreamscape that she's got going on where everything is this idealized version in a perfect world, things would be like this type thing. The dreamscape in and of itself, I feel like, is an episode on the Sassnack Files. There are so many little Easter eggs going on. There's so many nuances to the different things that are happening in the dreamscape. So I'll try not to prattle on about it. But I really thought it was genius to kind of break up the darkness of what was going on around Claire. And I felt like it was so Claire because she is very much a person that compartmentalizes and puts everything in its own little box. And this is something that we delve into more in season six. So I won't discuss it too much here. But I felt like it's not completely unrealistic to think that somewhere in her head full of these little boxes that she's got this imagined world of what if all the people that I loved here in the 18th century were back in the 1960s and 1970s with me. So that's kind of where she goes in this episode. Also, it gave the show a fantastic creative outlet, new palettes to play with, new costumes to play with, new sets to play with. And it gave the chance for the characters that are stuck in the 18th century to kind of play around a little bit. And it also gave us an opportunity to see some of those characters that have passed on reappearing in the show for kind of an encore performance of sorts. The dreamscape is very much an idealized version of Claire's life. Whenever we first start seeing it, it's kind of perfect. And it's got this very saturated color to it, very crystal clear lens to it. And then as the show progresses and as the content gets darker, the things that start to happen to her are harder and harder for her to isolate we start to see it seep into the cracks of this dreamscape. Everything of significance that she's ever had in this show is there, except for Brie and Roger. They keep putting it off. They're like, oh, they're delayed in the holiday rush. Oh, they're stuck in traffic. Oh, they'll be here eventually. And at the very end of the dreamscape sequence, two police officers show up that are Hodgepile and Lionel Brown. 
and they say, we're sorry to bother you on Thanksgiving, Mrs. Fraser, but Mr. and Mrs. McKenzie were killed in a car accident. And that horror that she experiences and this sense of dread all throughout the dreamscape, all throughout Thanksgiving dinner, is all about her worry for them going through the stones and not ever really knowing what's happened to them. I don't know what it's like to be a parent, but I know what it's like to live with anxiety. And I can't imagine the level of anxiety that Claire feels worrying about Brian Roger, knowing how horrific an experience it is to go through the stones and knowing how many people die as a result of trying to go through the stones and not ever knowing if they made it where they're going. So that is seeping through on top of everything else that she's going through. Like I said, as we continue on through the dreamscape, the cracks start to show. We start to see the water dripping through the ceiling. There's a storm outside and her and Jamie are dancing and then they're standing in front of the window and he wraps a blanket around her and they're staring at the storm going on outside and the symbolism in that moment I was just blown away by that because I'm like, how many times in this series have we come back to Jamie and Claire being a safe harbor for the other person? And that no matter what is going on in the world, they're the safe space for each other. And I think that was really what they were telling us by the storm raging outside and them staring through the window at it. Then the next time that we see that kind of scene, we see Lionel showing up in the window. And then we flash forward to Thanksgiving dinner and she's sitting there listening to Jamie toast and everything's perfect. She sees Lionel at the end of the table leaning in raising a glass to her. Her own little world that she's created to protect herself is slowly but surely even starting to crumble. It's not a safe space anymore like it was. There are tons of little Easter eggs in this dreamscape. And like I said, I think that this could probably be its own episode. I counted 13 in all, and I know some people have counted upwards of 20. There were other things that I was watching for this episode, so I'm sure I missed some. So I'll just read them to you. The record player is one of them at the very beginning. Claire talks about how one of the things that she misses the most about the 20th century is listening to music anytime you want and being able to put on a record and listen to some good jazz. She talks to Brianna about that after she first comes to the Ridge in season four. Number two, the orange. Three, Claire's red dress. I think there was a very pointed reason for putting Claire in a red dress in this episode. In season two, when Claire wore the famous red dress to the court at Versailles, she designed that dress herself. And in that dress, she felt sexy, she felt confident, and she felt strong. And I feel like in your head where you literally go to escape the worst possible thing that could happen to you, of course, you're going to put yourself in something that makes you feel safe, secure, and confident in what's happening around you. Four, the Impressionist painting of the big house. She's sitting on the couch at the very beginning of this episode, staring at a painting. And you have to kind of unfocus your eyes a little bit. But if you look at it, it's actually a painting of her and Jamie's home together that they've built on the ridge. Number five, the blue vase. That's the vase that she was looking at in the window of the shop when they were in Inverness in 1945 in the very first episode. And she says... She's never owned a vase because she's never had a home permanent enough to own such a simple thing. 
And now in her perfect little world that she's concocted, she lives in this safe space with Jamie and she has her vase. Number six, Jamie, in general, dressed in sort of modern clothing, but it's also very much his 18th century clothing. They put his leather jacket on him, like his duster that he wears, but it's a shorter crop to be something more uh, period appropriate to the 1970s. Also, the linen shirt that he's wearing, not completely 18th century accurate, not completely 1970s accurate. So I love how they put the spin on the clothing. So he's still of his time because that's how Claire sees him, but it's more fitting for her dream world. Number seven, the quote, you're shaking so hard, it's making my teeth rattle. Something that Jamie also told her in the very first episode of Outlander. When he wraps his plate around her and they ride all through the night towards Castle Leak. One cool thing that I did notice, and I guess this is kind of like a second Easter egg, a part two to this Easter egg. The first time we see Jamie wrap something around Claire in the dreamscape and she as she's watching the storm outside, it's just a simple tan blanket. And then the second time we see it, as we watch the evolution of her dreamscape morphing, it actually turns into his plaid. So that was part two of that Easter egg. Number eight, the entire cast, the whole family there But they're all modern spins, like different takes on who they actually are in the Outlander universe. Everybody's different, though. Anybody that has any sort of imperfections in any way in the actual show is made perfectly whole and healthy. Jocasta can see. Myrta's alive, so Myrta and Jocasta are there together. Fergus has his hand. Ian is just coming back from Vietnam, which... He's a young warrior coming home from the Mohawk in the show. So I get that she would make that linear choice. It kind of parallels very nicely with his story in reality. Number nine is the dragonfly in amber that Jermaine is playing with. I thought that that was so fitting to be in her dreamscape because whenever her and Jamie discussed her war PTSD in Je Suis Prey in season two... She talks about how she doesn't ever want to lie in that ditch again, helpless and alone, and that she feels like she's a dragonfly in amber, like powerless to stop what's happening around her. And that is exactly how she feels in this episode. Powerless, helpless, and alone. So I felt that it was very appropriate that Jermaine was playing with the dragonfly. Number 10 is the rabbit. Jamie saw the rabbit in season three, episode one, when he was dying on Culloden Field. I always felt that that kind of symbolized his family, um, especially since Brianna had such a love of rabbits. I kind of felt like that was their way of keeping her in the show with her parents. So even though she's not physically in the dreamscape, I felt like that was kind of the way of like bringing it full circle. So I did include it. Um, number 11 was Jamie wrapping her in his plaid. Then number 12, the wall hangings from Lollybrock are in there. If you watch as they walk down the hallway, that main hallway along the wall of windows. And you also get to see the microscope that Jamie gave Claire also sitting there in the hallway. So lots of little Easter eggs going on. I'm sure I could go on and on about the symbology of all of it. But for time's sake, 
we're going to move on to the music, which I guess in and of itself is a little bit of an Easter egg. Never My Love is written by The Association, and it was first released in 1967. So very much music that Claire would have heard before she went back through the stones in 1968. I read somewhere that they actually initially had a different song that they were going to use for this episode and for the purposes of the dreamscape, but ended up going with Never My Love. I think it was probably for money purposes, if I had to guess, because they made a similar change in the season one premiere with Roger singing L-O-V-E. That was originally supposed to be a different song as well. All of that being said, at the very end, when the police officers show up and Claire's worst fear is realized that Brie and Roger are not safe, that they have been killed, I thought that was a fantastic transition into what actually happened to Roger and Brie, which... Yeah, they went through the stones and got spit back out. Did not happen in the book. But I guess when you're looking at it through the lens of the final scene with Roger and Brie of season five, and they're talking about, Brie asks him, are you disappointed that we didn't go back home? And Roger looks very much at peace and he looks at her and he says, you know, we asked the stones to take us home and they did. I think that's their way of recognizing that this is where they belong and they can accept that and finally be settled in season six, which I really do feel like we see in season six. So in that respect, I guess it was okay. I'm just not really a fan of what the repercussions are going to be, I think, in future scenes because of the decisions that they made to kind of do that fake out here. So I talked a little bit about the rescue before, but one thing that really, really struck me, Jamie's reaction to seeing Claire. It's the one thing about this episode in an episode full of intense things that makes me cry when I watch it because he knows what she's going through and he wants to make sure she's okay. I think he was almost willing to show mercy to allow certain people to walk free after he initially got Claire back. And then when he sees that Claire has been raped and that there were so many of them that attacked her that she doesn't even know how many or who it was that I think part of him just snaps, honestly. And I don't know how you could not hearing that from the person that you love most in the world, to hear that they've been through something like that and to just be like, ah, you'll be okay. It's fine. I think that's pretty impossible. But there's another reason for him giving the order to have them killed, I think. In 503 Free Will, Jamie talks to Claire about how whenever he thought Blackjack was dead, it did give him a measure of peace. And Claire says, from contemplating revenge. But they were talking about how all Jamie wanted for Brie was to give her some peace. And that's why he chose not to tell her that Bonnet was still alive. But I think that Jamie knows the last time he let a bad person walk free, even worse things happened. And that he can't make that mistake again. He can't let these men go like he let Stephen Bonnet go. Because they're just going to go on to do even worse deeds. And so I think that's where what Jamie and Claire went through with Stephen Bonnet in season four into season five really starts to inform their characters and inform their decisions. When Jamie's contemplating what his next move is, that's what educates his answer that, well, last time I let somebody go, this is what happened. So 
This time, everybody dies. Also, he knows that Claire's not going to have any measure of peace unless every single last man that hurt her is dead. Obviously, one person escaped and that one person is Donner. And again, that'll come back to bite him in the ass. But when Jamie says, kill them all, oh my god. I think the idea of killing has been a really prevalent theme throughout the past few episodes with everything that happened with Stephen Bonnet. But this episode, we see Roger kill a man, we see Marsily kill a man, and we see Jamie give the order for several men to be killed. So lots of killing in this finale, but it's all under that banner of protecting those that you love. I think that's probably the one tie that binds. And the fact that this isn't something new to Jamie, but it is something that is very much new to Marsily and Roger. I don't think that Marsily regrets her choice to kill Lionel. I think that she's scared of what happens next, like she's fearful for her soul. And I loved that Jamie was there to comfort her. And we got like a father-daughter scene between them because we haven't had one of those between Marsily and Jamie. And then to kind of see that compared to Brie being there for Roger when he needs to talk it out. Those scenes between Brie and Roger were really great. The only thing that threw me off was there was a moment when Roger was saying, what a horrific combination of words for anyone to find within themselves and utter to another being. That was definitely ADR. And I think that was the most obvious ADR or additional dialogue recording, if you're not familiar with that term, I have ever seen in the Outlander series. It wasn't a voiceover, but it sounded like one. It didn't sound like the initial dialogue at all. But then there was an instance of ADR later when he says, can you put out the candle? He basically has confession in the dark laying in bed with Brianna. And after the light goes out, he says, I killed a man. That was also ADR. That was not originally in the script. That's something they completely did in post. And oh my God, I loved it. Because I love the idea that Roger and Brie, like Jamie and Claire, can tell each other anything. Even the most horrific things that they are ashamed to admit to anyone else, they can tell each other. And I felt like this scene was the culmination of that idea in those characters. Going back to the rescue one more time, when everyone comes to Claire at the end and Jamie's already there with her and John Quincy Myers, Fergus, and Ian all come up. The expressions on Cesar Domboy's face and John Bell's face are priceless, in my opinion. I think that they did so much without saying a word. When John Quincy Myers offers Claire his knife and says, there are some still alive, will you have your vengeance upon them, mistress? Jamie says, she's bound by an oath she may not kill for her own life. It is myself that kills for her. And young Ian and Fergus step up and say, and I, and I, me lady. It's like every effort she's put into helping these young men develop into the characters that they become, they really do view her as a mother. And Jamie is their adoptive father. They would walk through fire for these two. And I think that seeing something so horrific done to a woman that they view as their mother is just, it's beyond bearing for them. And then to see that mirrored with the expressions on Marsily and Bree's face when Claire gets back to the ridge 
these are two young women that are also survivors of domestic abuse or sexual assault, violence of some sort, and they're there to help Claire in her hour of need as she has been there to help them. It's really a moving experience. It's this great show of the strong family that the Frasers have built. The last topic of discussion, and I think it's a big one, is Jamie and Claire and their scenes that they have together. There are three key ones that I want to discuss. The first one is them in the bedroom after they first get back to the ridge. All three of these scenes were powerful in their own way to me. The scene in the bedroom when they first get back, Jamie is grief-stricken by how out of it Claire is, how beaten she is, and he says, the sight of you tears my heart. And they talk about how Jamie really just wants to commit murder at the idea that somebody would dare to lay a hand on her and hurt her. And she's warring with herself the entire back half of this episode because Claire also has the desire to see justice done for what was done to her. She also knows on the other side of things that that's not what she stands for. That's not her. Like she took an oath to do no harm. And so when she looks at Jamie and says, I'm glad the others are dead, but I'm sorry that I am. She doesn't enjoy feeling that way. She doesn't like the vengeance in her heart. She's a person that helps people. That makes me heartsick to see that kind of struggle on somebody that is so inherently good. Claire would haul herself across hot coals to protect those that she loves, but when it comes to defending herself, she would rather help someone. And she's never been in this position before where something so horrible was done to her that all she wants to do is take it out on somebody. That kind of inner conflict is what she's struggling so much with. I mean, yeah, she feels completely broken and almost like an out-of-body experience, but I really think that deep down she holds on to who she is at her core, which is a doctor. And so when Jamie says, like, you're forgetting, I know what this feels like, and she's like, no, you don't know what this feels like. Yeah, he knows what it's like to be raped, And he knows what it's like to question who you are. And that's what he's saying. He knows what it's like to question everything. But what she's saying is her experience is unique to herself. And she has been through so much that it's hard to believe that there's anything that could break her. That quote that Katrina has, it just knocks my socks off every time I watch her give this monologue. And I appreciate what both the writers and Sam did by giving Katrina the space to say what what needed to be said and in her own time. I love that Jamie's presence in the room is merely there to give her a sounding board and that he's extremely emotional because of what she's telling him, but he's not going to interfere. He's letting her tell her story and vent her frustrations and let her be just to be. And she says, I have lived through a fucking world war. I have lost our child. I lost two husbands. I've been starved with an army and I've been beaten and I've been betrayed and I've been imprisoned and I will not. I survived. And this, I'm supposed to be shattered by this, well, I won't be. I love that we have such strength coming off this character, but it's just devastating to see because she's been the strong one for everyone. She's been the one that has always been there for everybody else. 
it's definitely poetic that now she has such a strong support system around her that she can be the weak link for a little bit. Like she can lean on everyone else because their family is so strong that it can withstand anything. And to know that Jamie is there for her, like the eye of the storm, like I said, her safe harbor, it really was a powerful moment where she could just say what she needed to say and knowing that nobody was going to judge her, that the person that was listening to her on the other side of things really understood on a deep level what she was going through. And I think in that moment also, because you can see Jamie just has tears in his eyes. Like he doesn't know what to say and he wishes that she wasn't going through what she's going through. But also I think on a level, like part of him wishes that he had been able to be as strong as she is being in this moment. And I think that is very representative in that final scene that they have together where they're laying in bed with the storm raging outside, much like it was in the dreamscape. And it's this beautiful shot of them, again, with the contrast of their pale skin on the dark sheets. You can see the bruises littering Claire's body and Jamie's cradling her like a small child, covering her with his body as much as he can, trying to protect her. And he says, Christ, you're a brave wee thing. Like He knows how much it costs and how much it takes to be sexually intimate with your partner after you've gone through something so violent. And he knows how long it took him to get there. So to see that she was able to get there, like I think that he considers that very brave. And then he asks her how she feels and she says, safe. And I felt like that was the perfect way to end this episode, honestly, because... She spent this entire episode trying to be safe and trying to find her her shreds of sanity, holding it together as much as she could and trying to find that blade of grass to hide under, as um, Jamie put it in season two. So to see that they found each other again after something horrific happened to one of them, it really was a peaceful way to end this episode, I think. The last scene that I want to talk about is the scene with Jamie and Claire on the back porch. It was a really great scene and it has one of my all-time favorite quotes of the series. I felt like it was extremely important to see Jamie and Claire trying to get back to normal after Jamie gets back from Brownsville and Claire's recovering. She's trying to tease him and she says, that post is crooked. And he says, oh, is that all? I'll mend it now. But it's really about them appreciating their normal everyday life and seeing that life does indeed go on and they need to embrace that because who knows how much longer they'll have this small pocket of peace because the revolution is coming. They did a good job of planting some future seeds in these final scenes. The one with Jamie and Richard Brown sets up that animosity going forward into season six, and the scene between Jamie and Claire standing on the back porch sets up the impending revolution coming down the tracks for season six as well. But it also gives Jamie and Claire an opportunity to have a quiet moment together after the chaos and the pain and the suffering of this episode to really just stand there and talk about what's to come and that whatever comes, they'll face it together. I love that Jamie put in the quote from Thucydides that says, the bravest are surely those with the clearest vision of what is before them, glory, danger alike, yet notwithstanding, go out to meet it. And Claire says, well, you'd know all about that, wouldn't you? 
Because literally that's what this series is, is Claire coming as the harbinger of doom and telling Jamie all these terrible things that are going to happen. And he has to go out and face it on a regular basis. And he says, it's only brave when there's a choice that must be made. Like, if I have to face it no matter what, it's not brave. And I think that some people would disagree because you could always just crawl under the bed and hide. And I think that that's a valid option for some people, but Jamie would never do that. And so I think that that is extremely brave for him to soldier on, as it were. But my favorite quote of the series is after that. Claire turns to Jamie and she says, I love you. I felt like it was so critical to our understanding of Claire in that moment for her to say that because it was so simple and yet so pure. Whatever happens to her, that's the one thing that's not going to change. She loves Jamie no matter what. And after what has happened to her, she realizes that you can't ever say it enough. The people around you need to know that you love them. And I think that's really what Claire is saying in that moment. And so when Jamie replies with, when the day shall come that we do part, if my last words are not, I love you, you can, it's because I didn't have time. And that's something that was actually based off of something that Diana Gabaldon's husband told her, which I think is extremely romantic, but also heartbreaking at the same time. And after everything that these two have been through, Jamie and Claire, I think that that is something that they both know. They know how much the other loves them. They have a conversation in the books where Claire stops him. They're like walking back to the house after taking a a long walk at night. They're walking back to the house and Claire stops Jamie and she says, I know I don't say it a lot, but you know I love you, right? And he says, this is very much paraphrased, but he basically says, of course I know it but it doesn't hurt to hear it every now and then. Claire is not one that expresses her emotions easily. She's, uh, especially in the books, is not tender-hearted, I guess. Like, she's not eloquent like Jamie is. Jamie is very much say what you mean when you need to say it. But Claire is not that way. And so to have this kind of moment where they're just having a quiet moment on the back porch watching their family, and she turns to him and says, I love you, it just really meant the world to me as a viewer really struck me this episode. Alrighty, guys, that brings my analysis of season five to a close. Before I wrap up this episode and move on to listener comments, I want to go over my quote of the episode, which of course is the one I just got done speaking about, where Jamie says, when the day shall come that we do part, if my last words are not, I love you. You know it's because I didn't have time. Performance of the episode obviously goes to Katrina Balfe, although honestly, there are so many... (laughs) So many good performances this episode that it was hard to just single it out to her performance, but I feel like she did such a phenomenal job that I had to give it to her. And then my honorable mention is Sam Hewen because this episode was Claire focused. And so I think naturally Katrina gets performance the episode, but there were so many scenes when Sam just rocked my world for lack of a better term. One in particular that I was thinking of is after they save Claire and all the men are laying dead and they find Lionel on the ground, the look on Sam's face when Jamie is staring down at Lionel, just murderous intent. And I was like, that is red Jamie. 
to a T. Just like, you know, he would peel the skin off of Lionel's body piece by piece just to watch him suffer for what he did declare. Like, that is the look that Jamie is giving Lionel at that moment. But he takes a deep breath and says, I'm going to take Claire home and like walks away. But it's that ferocity held in leash because it's not yet warranted. Sam is so good about the complexities of Jamie's character at this point that it's really hard for me to not just rave about him on an endless basis. That wraps up what I have to say on the season five finale. But as always, I open it up to you guys to let me know what you thought of season five, episode 12, Never My Love. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Tally Weisbrem says, I thought it was brilliant and also thought the way that they dealt with it in season six was extraordinary and overall psychologically wise and realistic. Yeah, I definitely felt like they did not let it go. I know a lot of shows, they kind of just are like, yeah, this sexual assault happened. This really terrible thing happened to this really key character, but two or three episodes later, they're fine again. That definitely was not the case with Outlander. They definitely made the characters sit with it, which I thought was really great. Hillary Granfield says, when I first started watching this episode, I thought that perhaps Claire had never traveled back in time. I thought that maybe they were showing us that the whole time travel experience was a fantasy in her head and that Jamie, Anne, Marsley, and all the other 18th century characters really lived in the 20th century. It was like another reference to The Wizard of Oz. Like Dorothy, Claire had a dream of going to a very different world and she took all the people she loved with her. I thought it was a really dramatic way to turn the story on its ear. Boy, was I ever taken with how the episode progressed. I was not a book reader at the time, and I was shocked to see all that Claire was going through. It was a white-knuckle episode for me, and I thought it was fantastic. It was a fantastic episode. The storytelling element, all the different camera work, the writing, the actors, everybody was phenomenal. And... While it's not my favorite season finale ever, it's not even my favorite episode of season five, it's definitely still up there and it's definitely a fantastic episode. And there were actors that just had standout moments for me, for sure. Last comment of the episode is from Joan Cohen. She said, This episode blew me away. The visuals, the storyline, and the acting. The dreamscape was a brilliant concept. We can be inside Claire's head and understand her disassociating to help her cope without the need for words. It really worked to show such an intense and horrific experience as fragmented and hallucinatory, and it's a good callback to the battle joined, especially when the rabbit appears. Never My Love was the perfect song choice. Claire needs the reassurance of Jamie's love contained in the lyrics, and the softness of the music is a good counterpoint to the harshness of what's actually happening to her. Even the colors told a story. The dream had rich, warm tones, while the sequences with Lionel and company were cool and washed out. The callbacks were great. I think they were something from every season, and they highlighted so many pivotal places and moments in her life. I also love the callback of Bree saying, you have my hand and my ear. She truly understands what Claire is going through. Brie has matured so much and she's able to mother Claire when she needs it most. The theme of the importance of family continues from the last episode. I loved how the whole family rushes forward to provide a buffer for Claire when Lionel and Hodgepile appear at the door to deliver bad news. There were some other wonderful family moments, Anne and Fergus saying they will kill for her, Brianna and Marsley embracing her when she comes back to the ridge, and Roger reminding Jamie he meant it when he said he'd stand by Jamie when he made his oath in the first episode. 
I had an aha moment when I recognized all the foreshadowing this time around. Lionel threatening and haunting Claire, her speech about how she won't be shattered by this experience, and her hiding with her pain as she curls up in a fetal position and cries all lead to her behaviors in season six. Katrina's performance was absolutely gut-wrenching. The end of the episode was beautiful, showing their need for skin-to-skin contact to heal, like in Monsters and Heroes. I imagine that Claire had finally told Jamie some of her experiences, finally letting him in, which is why he says she's a wee brave thing. I love that he's gently cradling her, protecting her with his body as he's promised since the beginning. They're bathed in a pool of warm light, even though a storm is raging outside. They're in the eye of the storm once again, just like in the last episode of season three. More foreshadowing of things to come. This was a fabulous end to a great season, and anytime we get to see warrior Jamie in a kilt, badass Marsley taking down the bad guy, and the whole family in mod clothes feels like a bonus to me. Whoa, that was a really loaded comment, Joan. I loved the scene between Jamie and Roger as well. I felt like it was really the culmination of everything that they went through this season that finally, full circle, in the last episode, Roger says, you called me at the fire. You said, stand by my side, son of my house. Did you mean that? And Jamie says, you can, I did. And he says, well, I meant it too, because there are times for men of peace and a time for men of blood. I will stand by you. That's so beautiful because after the events of the company we keep and the failures of Brownsville, Roger is laying in bed with Brianna and he's talking about how much he feels like he disappointed Jamie and how Jamie doesn't trust him and that Roger really meant what he said when he swore loyalty to Jamie at the Fiery Cross. Now we're standing at the end of the season and Roger can really stand there and say to Jamie, no, I 100% meant what I said. And that Jamie can take that and hold on to it and appreciate it for what it is was really a beautiful moment, in my opinion. There was tons of foreshadowing to Claire's upheaval in season six. I won't get into it too much, but for sure, I I also saw when I watched this episode this week that they were really starting to point at how this was going to devolve for Claire really quickly because she doesn't like to tell people people what's going on inside her head. She just likes to keep it to herself and be the strong one. And uh, that's definitely not helping her as she moves forward. Alrighty, guys. Well, that wraps up my analysis of season five. Do not forget that next week, or actually later this week, probably by the time you're listening to it, May 28th, at 4 p.m. Eastern time, my friend Angela from Outlander Cast Clan Book Club and Queen Bee's Hive on Patreon is going to join me for a live episode of the Sassanac Files on my Facebook page, TSF of Sassanacs. We're going to be discussing all the highs and lows of season five. So if you would like to join us, make sure to join my group, TSF of Sassanacs, on Facebook. Just make sure to answer all three of the admission questions and agree to follow the rules. And me or one of my admins will get around to approving your request shortly. From there, you can click going to the event for next week's podcast. That is where the Facebook Live will occur within that group. Here shortly, I will also be posting all of the topics that Angela and I are going to be discussing so that if you would like to get a head start and kind of be thinking about what your favorites or not so favorites were of the season regarding that specific topic, you can. With all of that out of the way, I'm going to sign off for this week. Can't wait to talk to you next week when we're discussing everything we loved about season five and season five superlatives. Until then, you guys stay safe out there, and I'll chat to you later. Bye!